Here we go. Buckle up, folks. Today I have Daniel Tut for you all. Daniel was a direct student of Slavoj Žižek and Alain Bedzu from the European Graduate School, who specialized in the area of psychoanalysis and Marxist philosophical thought. Following my conversation with Matt Flissfetter on a new humanism and structuralism for the left, I thought Daniel would be the perfect follow-up guest, and he did not disappoint. Building on my conversation with Matt Flissfetter, I wanted to have Daniel on to unpack his work on the legacy of post-Oedipal politics and talk about its relationship to the new right, postmodern conservatism. In a recent interview he did with John Bellamy Foster over at the Monthly Review on a new form of irrationalism that has been taking hold in our culture. That said, we had a vast and sweeping conversation on how the left can start to adapt to these changes and begin to adopt pro-social behaviors to ideas of the religion, the family, and even pragmatist philosophy to counter the rise of the new right, start to build a new structuralism to have a better epistemological understanding of politics based on what I like to call integral facticity. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Daniel Tut. Like usual, make sure to check out the show notes for links and further readings. Cheers. Like I was just sharing, I'm super excited to chat with you, uh, especially coming off my uh, my conversation with Matt Flissfetter uh, and a re-listening and re-listening to your conversation with uh, John Bellamy Foster recently and the article and some of the uh, stuff that came out of that or came up for me anyways. So I'm, uh, again, I'm very excited to uh, get into this conversation with you. Um, I guess I... I want to start a bit with your bio, actually, because uh, I'm dying to know a bit more about how you ended up at the European Graduate School. And uh, I was also very touched uh, by your bio in terms of how candid you were in terms of your your roots and uh, your intellectual journey. So maybe we could start a bit there uh, and you can share a bit from your bio and I'll probably have a few questions for you on that as well. Okay, great. Thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here with you on this program. Um, talk about ideas and hopefully how they intersect with practice. Um, yes, my 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 my. Well, let's see. My educational trajectory has been interesting. Um, I mean, I basically. I mean, I don't. I don't want to give you. Uh, we could spend a long time talking about it, but you asked <laughs> about the EGS, so let me start there. I think okay. that's useful. When I was in grad school. I was actually studying religion and philosophy. I was not even really familiar with Marx. I was a little bit familiar with Marx. I was actually more familiar with psychoanalysis and French theory. And so basically what happened was there was a uh, the first annual Zizek Studies Conference. This was in 2011. And I submitted a paper, paper one first place. I took that as a kind of sign <laughs> that studying um, with Zizek was there at the conference. And so I kind of took that as a sign that it's really important that I um, dig deeper into Slavoj's repertoire of of work, you know, overall. And that's exactly what I did. So the EGS was the only place where he was teaching at the time that I could access him. So I really went there to study with him, but it became much more, much more than that. It became kind of a uh, sort of rendezvous with philosophers that I consider the kind of preeminent thinkers of our time. 
Um, so I was actually accepted to do my dissertation with Alain Badiou, the French philosopher. That went very well. I also worked with Lawrence Rickles, who's a, a more of a traditional Freudian. And that really satisfied, and he's much more rigorous in giving me feedback on my writing and things like that. So it was a good balance this for my for my dissertation. And going to Switzerland for the residency was very, very inspiring. Not so much, not only because of the teachers, but also because of the network of comrades and students that I met who I'm still very much in touch with, such as uh, figures like Gabriel Tupanamba, the psychoanalytic philosopher. Um those have been lasting relationships. So that was a that was a very interesting kind of um, unconventional. My, my educational journey has been very unconventional. Um, I think, as you mentioned, I come from a kind of working class background, which means several things. I mean, apropos education, it means that I, I never really had any guidance in education. Um, no fault of my parents. It just is the material conditions that they were faced with. So I kind of had to discover the truth on my own, so to speak. And my journey was really, um, I benefit from it, from teachers, of course, but I, I still have always sensed that I'm very much an autodidact um, in part because I've never, I've never really had a clean fit at an educational institution. Um, you know, growing up, I had a lot of uh, turmoil and so that that always put my relationship to institutions a bit in a in a strain. So I've never I've never really um, I've always been a bit of an outsider in terms of institutions. And that's been true since high school. <laughs> so I've just stayed I've stayed consistent in that regard. But I've tried to cultivate a intellectual path that I think is, you know, um, interested in pursuing a critique of power, interested in pursuing a kind of um, an imminent theory of society. I'm, I'm interested also in cultural critique. I've realized that um, even though like Zizek and the Slovene school has a very interesting critique of cultural criticism, more and more, I, I actually find that cultural criticism and social critique is, is very much at home with, with my trajectory of thinking. So like, for example, I've recently published a book on the family and I'm really Really, actually, it is big time an intervention in the field of social critique and cultural cultural theory, right? So um, I also have um, a, a sort of political interest in religion um, that comes out of an experience first with protesting the Iraq war. And then second, related to that, a, a falling into a deep study of the Islamic faith. Mm. And from that, I've developed a lot of... Um, a lot of interest in studying uh, Muslim politics and Islamic religiosity, which we could talk about that as well. And so, but then, you know, a big event for me was actually the discovery of Marx. And that actually occurred um, when I was in grad school, basically. And at some point, I really decided to go down that rabbit hole. And since I have done so, I feel that most of my most of the kind of compass of my intellectual proclivities are guide are guided by a Marxist orientation, right? So that's kind of the my heart, the center of my intellectual endeavors is guided by a kind of Marxist orientation to to being in, in intellectual in a more comprehensive sense. And I mean, I can define what I mean by that, and I can kind of try to because I mean, part of my conversation with Bellamy Foster 
was obviously revolving around Lukács, the great mm -hmm. Marxist philosopher. And he's a good example of someone who I've discovered really in the last few years, but somebody who opens up a light for Marxist inquiry that I find very different than a lot of the Marxism we learn in the university. Mm -hmm. um, and we can talk about some of those details. Oh, absolutely. That's a, bit, that's a bit about my background. Yeah. No, and, and I mean, this is why, well, I was fascinated, obviously, looking over your bio and seeing that you had a, a bit of a religion background. I mean, I'm coming to you from religious studies. Uh, so in even my conversation with Matt uh, Flissfetter uh, and Matt McManus as well, I mean, because I'm, I'm coming to you guys from completely different discipline. Um, uh, but my interest in all of your work um, is this... Uh, well, it's is that you guys are well, I guess the reason why I'm so interested in all your work is that you guys are not afraid of religion or you don't seem to have some sort of reactionary impulse towards it. This uh, is actually why when you see, I had sort of turned to a, a deep study of the Islamic religion. I had connected more to my own Christianity um, in about the early 2000s before I discovered the work of Alain Badiou and Slavoj Žižek, who, by the way, when I did discover them, you'll remember they were writing books on St. Paul. Mm -hmm. They're not, that's not happening anymore exactly, but there was a sense in which these kind of Marxist philosophers were also very open to, to religious discourse. And that, that was very much appealing to me. Got it. Okay. And I mean, even your, because your PhD is, is really interesting to me as well. I mean, this idea of communitas, um, and obviously you weave in this idea of, of ontological love within your, uh, your PhD thesis. Um, and I, I didn't have obviously the opportunity to go and read that. I just read through the abstract, but I, maybe you can talk a bit about that as well in terms of yeah. how that feeds into your, your larger work on the family. Uh, and obviously your turn towards more Marxist and political thinking as well. Yeah. At some point I might publish the dissertation, um, I've hesitated to do so in part because I still feel that as a dissertation, it's a bit less structured as I'd like for it to be. Okay. Um, but I think that uh, what what I'm wrestling with in this dissertation is a sort of look at the philosophy of community that has come about in a post-1989, a post-Soviet context. And um, so some, some prominent thinkers for me are Roberto Esposito from the Italian a political philosopher to Jean-Luc Nancy, the the left Heideggerian French philosopher, uh, as well as Ernesto Leclau, Slavoj Žižek, and Alain Badiou. And so what I find interesting about this kind of turn to a focus on community is that it comes in the wake of the collapse of the kind of teleological conception of community that we had from the Soviet period. So there's something historically that collapses in the very concept of community. And so I'm trying to show that the various diverse ways that community is being rethought for a kind of post-Soviet social context. And that there is a kind of, therefore, also a new thinking of the political, uh, of the kind of domain of the political has to also be rethought and reopened. And I mean, I think it is very much tied into my interest in family in the sense that I find that much of the kind of uh, impetus of my dissertation was a an analysis of how Lacan and specifically Lacan's insights into politics um, 
helps us think a version of community which is non-identitarian or kind of not based on bonds rooted in identitarian belonging, right? But as actually Lacan has this notion of lack, which is a very paradoxical conception of community that I work with. And that I think that all of the thinkers I cited are also influenced by. And what this, what this allows for is a kind of different theory of belonging, um, a different theory of belonging for how we might rethink um, solidarity. So these questions of communal belonging, solidarity, family are always very important to me because I'm also wanting to theorize the meaning of what it means to be on the left, right? What, what is the meaning of belonging on the left? This is sort of one of the main drivers of my work on community is a kind of question about the meaning of the left itself, right? Yeah. Um, that, that I think continues to animate my work. Um, for example, from from the community work to the family book to my to my other recent book, which is about um, the legacy of left Nietzscheanism. So I'm always tethering with the historical oscillations of the meaning of the left, and um, and you know as I do so, I'm also realizing that I've become or grown to become maybe more critical of some of the philosophers that I wrote my dissertation on, from Zizek, Badiou to Nancy. And um, part of that, it has to do with my reading of Marx and a kind of sense in which um, how they revised Marxism, because that's very much what's going on here is, I think perhaps we're not as aware of it as we should be, but one of the things that Marxist philosophers have done after 1989 is participate in, in what's called the kind of, um, uh, the kind of, the sort of, uh, re not, not revision of Marx, but revisioning of Marx, right? Not So it's not so much like the Bernstein revisionist controversy from the second international period. No, it's much more what's, what's going on here is a kind of theoretical excavation of Marxism and a, a creation of a whole new set of concepts to describe what Marxism is. This usually falls under the, the bucket of what's called post-Marxism. And um, when I wrote my dissertation in about 2011 through 2014, 2015, that range, I was very much comfortable with this idea that Marx needs to be radically revised. I was kind of in concert with the, the thinkers that I was grappling with. But as I sort of witnessed the post-2008 situation unfold, the post-COVID situation unfold, I look at the state of the left, I've grown much more critical of post-Marxism. And we can talk about that as well. Yeah. But I think that the community book is an effort to kind of um, make an inventory of how the concept of community from basically Rousseau all the way up to the present. So I also provide a kind of historical genealogy is being uh, re reconceptualized. So this actually means that conceptions of solidarity, conceptions of universalism, um, conceptions of belonging, conceptions of the subject, of collective subjectivity, are all have to be rethought and re, uh, yeah, re re uh, reconceptualized in some sense. No, and so I, I sort of project I, there. I and I love it. I mean, if if you can actually go and send me a copy of it, I'd love to eventually read that too. Because my first instinct was like, oh my god, this is exactly like Paul Tillich. Paul Tillich had written a book called Love, Power, and Justice that had a tremendous impact on me. 
where he builds on this idea of uh, the idea of an ontological understanding of love and how he bridges that out in terms of his overall kind of systemic theology. Um, but I mean, as somebody in religious studies, um, I mean, in, that's one very interested, I guess, in the spiritual, the more, I guess, history of religion, that type of stuff. I mean, I, I'm, I always struggle with what's been happening on the left in a certain way in terms of this sort of anti-humanist, anti-family and anti-religion sort of, of strands, I guess, up on the left. And uh, I was really excited. I mean, one of the main reasons why I actually launched my podcast is because uh, quite a few of us have been following uh, Michael Brooks um, and uh, a lot of people that were coming out of kind of non-conventional <laughs> educational institutions, uh, people coming out of Goddard College, uh, people coming out of the California Institute of Integral Studies. And Michael is a bit of a product of that sort of educational sort of, I guess, um, I guess experiential education, I guess you can go and say that fostered and popped up, you know, through the sixties and stuff like that. And I'm also kind of a product of that as well. But the reason why so many of us kind of gravitated towards Michael was one was because he was, he was a walking embodiment of that. Uh, but also, I mean, how he was talking about the left and the idea of spirituality and weaving in religion and how close he was as well with Cornell West in a certain way. So for me, it was really, really exciting to go and see that. And I thought that we were going to go and have a really big moment, I think, on the left, you know, where this would go out and come to fruition. Uh, but like you, I mean, and all of us, I mean, we're a bit disappointed a bit about that. Um, and since Michael has kind of left the scene, I feel that the left, when it comes to the family and when it comes to religion, I mean, it's it's kind of lost a bit of a voice there. Uh, and I'm a bit concerned about it. And that's why I've gravitated towards uh, some of uh, Matt McManus's work and now why I'm reaching out to you as well, because I think you guys have a way to go out and talk about the family and talk about religion uh, that is very uh, constructive um, in a certain way. Um, but I, I guess, cause I mean, obviously your book on the family, I mean, you focus in on this idea of the, the legacy of the kind of the post Oedipal sort of politics and the problem mm -hmm. that, that actually goes out and represents. And obviously I'm, you know, one of the main reasons why I left university was because of this chaos, you know, everything having to do and do with postmodernism, post-structuralism. Mm -hmm. And I love the way you're framing it, this idea of post Oedipal sort of politics. And I'm wondering mm -hmm. how, how that that came about or that book mm -hmm. came about for you. Uh, and, uh, and if you see a way forward or, or a way out of this in a certain mm -hmm. way from, from, from that work. Great. Yeah. Great. So the post Oedipal theory is coming out of the kind of 68 moment, the 1968 protest, as well as the new left. And part of the proposal that is put down by, by that moment, in various iterations, uh, we can we can name some of the various thinkers in a moment. But taken taken on the whole, one of the arguments is a critique of the nuclear family, a critique of patriarchy. So you see this also in socialist feminist work, which of course I embrace and I I support one hundred percent. Where I deviate from some of these lines of of critique, however, revolves around a kind of understanding of how. Uh, some of the changes uh, uh, from the 68 and new left protest movements have been absorbed into capitalism. 
right? So this is a kind of neo-Vibarian argument that I find from the new spirit of capitalism work by Boltansky and Chiapello, where they convincingly show that capital capitalism in its kind of late neoliberal phase has absorbed much of the ludic, horizontal, and expressive antisocial uh, dimensions of 68 protest movement. And therefore, what we have on the left often is a kind of anti-familial, anti-social orientation. Mm -hmm. And I think that this actually um, doesn't allow the left to achieve its objective, which is to foster a more liberated subjectivity, a more liberated collective uh, experience. And it doesn't do that in part because I think that there's a kind of misunderstanding often regarding um, what the meaning of the bonds of family really are about and around the question as to whether the uh, authority of patriarchy, of paternal authority, in what sense can it be overcome? Now, psychoanalysis here plays a very interesting role because psychoanalysis in general will put forward the argument that, yeah, even in Freud, the attachments that we have to paternal authority need to be transcended, need to be overcome. Freud's not not a fascist, right? He's not saying that they need to be affirmed and obeyed. No, actually, Freud's theory of Oedipus is about a theory of a kind of pretty radical, subjective, independent liberation from attachments to the home. That's why Oedipus is about, I say it's about movement. It's not about stagnation, right? It's not about, in that, in that sense, Oedipus is a theory of breaking from the norms, breaking from authority. So you could critique psychoanalysis by saying, well, psychoanalysis puts forward a solution to that by relying on its own method. This is kind of the um, argument of the double bind, that psychoanalysis puts forward a critique for which it only provides the solution. Yeah. I mean, this is a kind of classic um, logical conundrum that I think even Popper put forward in his critique of psychoanalysis, right? That's another story. But what I'm trying to say is that um, antisocial and antifamilial positions paradoxically don't allow us at a subjective level to foster greater liberation. So I don't think that the left needs to be um, essentially or fundamentally antifamilial. I think that... Uh, there has there but but there has been a tendency of, of this new left and the hangover from 68 to precisely be that way and i think that that actually strains and harms uh, a lot of possibility for solidarity and one of the things that it does is that if we have a social order in which um subjects have a tendency not always but have a tendency to struggle with these kind of edipal attachments what that actually means what that actually indicates is that institutions will mold themselves off of the family and therefore those dependencies are never quite able to be transcended no, in that I... sense in that sense uh, what i develop is a theory of class power based on a new theory of dependence and ultimately i am opposed to paternalism so you see you see, the interesting point is that I'm actually for the same objective that many of the antisocial new left people are for, which is liberation. 
but I'm making a, a an argument and a debate, and I've had the uh, pleasure to debate people on this, that we need a different strategy to foster subjective uh, liberation that that basically does not literalize the paternal authority of the nuclear family in the way that we have. I don't think that the concept of the father needs to be fundamentally eradicated, but there's many family abolitionists that do argue that, right? Mm -hmm. I think actually psychically that would actually produce a profound harm in which the father will reappear, right? A, a, here I mean as a symbolic kind of specter in other places uh, of institutional life. And that will, that will weigh us down, you see. So I rely on an argument from the Frankfurt School, which argues that the bourgeois family uh, at certain points in history fostered a kind of greater capacity for rationally overcoming these Oedipal hangups and attachments. And that, that that is actually one thing that neoliberal era has not afforded us. So I argue that we live in conditions of of hyper paternalism and i even say that there's a there's a relationship between financialization finance capitalism and the debt servitude that it fosters especially for the working class and this this oedipal failure to transcend those dependencies so i'm developing a new theory of dependence and class and that's where marx comes in right i'm trying to theorize how this experience um, crosses class experience, how it is lived differently. So therefore, when I invoke the concept of the family, I think it's important to note that I'm not just talking about one conception. Um, that would be a quite religious idea, right? The family, I'm not really embracing a religious conception of the family as a, as a, as a homogenous transcendent entity. It's not purely a spiritual concept. I think actually rather I, re I rely on socialist feminist theories of the family through social reproductive theory. Okay. And then further argue that, well, there is an experiential difference and gap between middle class and working class families that we have sociological uh, proof of that we often ignore. And I believe that that's important to raise out, to, to reveal those 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 class experiences and that's a big focus of my work as you know is to uh, shine a light on the way that our generation in particular mm -hmm. is experience experiencing some of these forms of exploitation domination and dependence and um i think that's an interesting conversation to have i get in a lot of trouble online for raising these questions, <laughs> I can <imagine>. right? <laughs> um, which I think is, is perhaps, I don't know if you agree, Eric, an indication of I'm hitting a nerve mm -hmm. and perhaps, perhaps that's good to hit a nerve. I don't know. I'll leave well, that up to you and others. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I mean, being triggered by all of this in a certain way to me, uh, you know, if you're using psychoanalysis, I mean, well, why are you being so triggered? Uh, but this is what I'm so fascinated with, and I love about your work is that it fits so well with Matt McManus's work in a completely different way. I mean, Matt's work on the rise of postmodern conservatism and figures like Jordan Peterson, essentially, right? That there's, I mean, somehow that this is what it's produced our sociological historical conditions has produced a space now out of all the 
you know, everything that we've been talking about to go out and spew up a figure like Jordan Peterson, right? That is speaking exactly to this, you know, the legacy of the post Oedipal sort of politics that you're describing and you're talking about, right? Um, and I mean, another figure, I guess you could use is Christopher Latch. I mean, I know you've used Latch quite a bit mm -hmm. as a sort of controversial figure uh, as well to go out and unpack that. Um, and I mean, this is what I, I think is so interesting is that now that there is this new right, right, or this postmodern conservatism that has emerged, all of a sudden the left is having to go out and adapt. And right. I'm hopeful somehow that, you know, we're going to go out and sort of regroup in a certain way and something new is going to go out and emerge out of that. Um, and that's why I approached Matt Flissfetter and his ideas of a sort of a new humanism and new structuralism. Is, and is, is that sort of kind of what is emerging out of this, out of the left? Mm -hmm. um, so I guess, because I mean, I'm a big Habermas guy. Uh, mm. I got slammed hard in religious studies with Habermas. Mm. Um, and I was, I loved your article that you on, um, on American uh, Marxism, where you yeah. take pragmatism to task. Um, so I, I maybe want to want to just shift gears a bit and talk a bit sure. about that because, uh, this tension, particularly within North America in terms of between Marxism and pragmatism, uh, is an interesting one to me. I mean, like I said, I went, I went to, uh, you know, I, I'm out of a sort of very, uh, pragmatist background, you know, like the whole 1960s counter-revolution around experiential education is all built on Dewey in a certain way. Right. Right. Um, and I mean, and you really put your finger on that, you know, is this some sort of bourgeois sort of, of phenomena and stuff like mm. that? Um, so I, I, I'm curious to hear you kind of flesh out, uh, some of your thinking, whether there can be some sort of reconciliation maybe between pragmatism and Marxism, you know, that's where I think Habermas shines, but I'm curious to get a bit of your take, uh, yep. you know, as a more of a Marxist than I am in a certain way or more, uh, more obviously well-read on the Marxist tradition than I am. Uh, and here, here yeah. you flesh out some of that a bit. Yeah. I mean, this is another article that, that hit a nerve. And I mean, it's, it was meant to hit a nerve um, in part because what it, what it was, what it was trying to show was that there is a kind of historical experience that American Marxist theorists. And I don't mean when I say that I'm actually, I'm referring to people, most of whom, have kind of been lost to us in his by history. Um, we're not talking about like Trotsky and Lenin or Stalin or Mao. No, we're talking about a collection of turn of the 20th century up to World War One Marxist intellectuals who were very prominent and who were writing and thinking about socialism in the context when William James and John Dewey's thought was at its peak or early peak in the American Academy, right? And there is a really, really compelling dissertation that was done by Brian Lloyd um, called Left Out on the way that these theorists interacted with the Marxist theorists in their own backyard. And Lloyd puts forward a very convincing critique and this is sort of his book is at the heart of my article, but I rely on a lot more than just his work, where he shows that actually what ended up occurring is a sense in which Engelsian Marxism in particular was kind of removed from a lot of its uh, 
truth like the truths of of marxist theory was abandoned for a a, a revision of Mar of core marxist concepts in ways that ultimately harmed the class struggle so take a couple examples the first one was the pragmatist influence affected the way that these theorists thought about things like class itself and one of the things that it actually did was it argued that out of Dewey's notion of habit, of, of habit, that class is does not need to be construed as a kind of um, real category of social life, but is rather a much more adaptive and flexible conception of habit. So therefore, um, this paradoxically led these Marxists to conceive of class as a sort of static position. So in a paradoxical sense, the influence of Dewey led these Marxist theorists, and this is one of Lloyd's key points, to um, depoliticize class and de-radicalize their conception of working class agitation. So for example, they would organize socialist parties in America um, on a class exclusive basis, right? So they would not allow for um, they would they would identify class purely with one's occupation, and they would argue that a factory worker's mode of habit is going to be distinct from and kind of located within the field of their everyday experience, and that is going to be distinct from a bourgeois office worker or something like this or lawyer or professional, etc. So it rigidified the conception of class ultimately. And concretely what that led to, because again, I'm not really saying that I'm not, I'm not making the claim that Marxists should never engage with pragmatism. That would be way too strong for me to say. I'm just simply pointing out how it went, how it played out historically, which is, I think is a different claim because mm -hmm. I mean, if you take Mao, for example, I'll come back to this in a moment, but if you take Mao, I mean, it's well known that Mao worked with James uh, uh, John Dewey's thought, right, in his own conception of Marxism. That's well established. So there, there are Marxists that have to work with pragmatism and have worked with pragmatism. I'm not advocating a complete dismissal. I'm more advocating a warning, a warning based on this is how it it went down. And and one of the the main um, problems here was that when the class struggle got to a point of militant agitation in an organization known as the IWW. Um, when they were advocating revolution, even, even the question of violence came up. Um, Lloyd shows quite nicely that actually the influence of pragmatism um, led a lot of the Marxist theorists to argue against embracing the politicization of class, right? So that was one example of that. I think the other example that Lloyd points out and that he argues is that the influence of Dewey's pragmatism also led to an embrace of the First World War amongst the Marxist intelligentsia in America, right? And this is not too much of a shock because Dewey himself wrote a book about German philosophy, which put forward some crazy arguments, if you read it, such as um, you know, Kantianism is an offshoot of 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 Prussian uh, militarism, for example. 
um, or, you know, he was still influenced by this kind of notion that um, the national essence of a culture somehow imbues the activity of the collective in some way. So a bit of it, a, a bit of it is kind of dated to that that moment of a kind of um, a kind of liberal social Darwinism, if we if you if you will, that I think is problematic. So, anyways, my article was simply a way to show that um, the way that it played out in America had deleterious effects on on the integrity of Marxism, specifically on the possibility of the politicization of the class struggle. Um, so, you know, another dimension here goes back to the question um, that I think is important to ask of, you know, to what extent does the category in Marxist thought of the petite bourgeoisie play a role within how we conceptualize social struggle and social antagonism. And one of the arguments that that I make is that William James put forward, you know, his very famous book, The Varieties of Religious Experience. Okay. So it's a highly influential text. Um, I mean, you know, read, read so widely, definitely something that I think put forward a very pluralistic conception of, of religious experience. However, when you look again at how it was influenced, how it influenced socialist thinkers, Lloyd points out a very curious uh, point, which is that it gave sanction to the notion that revolution of the mode of production, let's say a more econ economic, productive, material form of revolution, can be abandoned for a revolution in the domain of personal experience mm, because okay. James gave scientific validity to personal experience. And then we can extrapolate from that 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 allowed for the intellectual, the petite bourgeois intellectual, to basically put forward the argument that their experience of being exempt from wage labor should be the domain of what is replicated in revolution. Now, the downside to that is that you don't center the working class as the agents of revolution, as Marx and Engels insisted. That's that's the downside. And the other downside is that you put forward a kind of culturalist theory of revolution. So what I tried to show in my article and this is a bit of a controversial point, is that James planted the seed for a conception of cultural revolution that the new left would later adopt in the 60s and 70s. Now, I'm not making the claim that cultural revolution should be abandoned. That would be too economistic, right? That would be too economistic. But what I am saying is, again, a warning that we need to incorporate both political and cultural revolutionary conceptions in our commitment to socialism. I think that socialism is also revolutionary. If we want to retain the dignity of the term socialism, we need to maintain a fidelity to revolutionary socialism. And that actually raises the specter of... Sorry, I'm having audio problems. Ah, oh, there you go. Cool. Got it. Now we're good. Yeah, we're good. Yeah, super. Um, 
I guess, well, one, I mean, this is just to go back to a bit of uh, Matt McManus's work, because Matt McManus's work on the rise of postmodern conservatism, I mean, essentially what he's, the genealogy that he's raising or this new right or whatever it is, is that it just keeps on hitting home on the cultural revolution, on the cultural revolution, right? Let's go out and fight this out on uh, the cultural war front, right? And they're talking about religion, they're talking about family. And I just don't, well, one, I'm just super excited to hear you talk, you know, in terms of how you're fleshing this out, because obviously you're taking, you're transcending and including both of these arguments in a certain way, right? You're including the cultural along with the, uh, uh, the, you know, political economic dimension to this. And th th this is what I think that the left needs to move to towards is that this, this new thinking that is capable of going out and doing that instead of just doubling down on the sort of, you know, the economic dimension to it in class, right? And uh, what I find so fascinating about Matt's work and your work and obviously Matt Flissfetter's work is that you seem to be articulating towards this uh, this new sort of uh, structuralism that is capable of going out and including all of that uh, in, a, in, a, in a way for us to go out and talk about it anyways on the left. Um, and that's what I think is super excited about um, but I mean, what do you think about, I guess, the new writers, what people are calling post, post liberalism, mm -hmm. the rise of post, post, post modern conservatism, uh, or, you know, whatever right. term you want to go out and choose to, to, to go out and do, because obviously they're doing something quite effective in terms of, uh, monopolizing or taking over political discourse. Mm -hmm. And, um, yeah, I, I'm wondering if you think maybe we should be talking a bit more about family and religion and what we're talking about today on the left to go and sort of counter that in a certain way. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great question. I mean, in, the new right is concerning to me in part because they have, in a sense, abandoned the old kind of traditional forms of authority and norms and they kind of represent a sort of the inverse of the anti-social left that i mentioned before insofar as they're not really interested in asking in a material sense what it would take to uh, fulfill the nostalgic dream they have for the traditional family or anything like that they have a night they have no um, serious material critique on offer. So they do fall into a, a hyper cultural, cultural form of politics, which I find obviously to be problematic in the sense that the left is forced to engage in a kind of mimetic battle at, at this. And the paradox of that is that it always feels to me, I don't know if you agree, as if we are not addressing the heart of the antagonism that's really at play. So I think the task of the left is a kind of political epistemological task, mm. right? To redirect this, the, 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 the site of antagonism, to, to reveal what the right and most of the left, especially the liberal left, is terrified of revealing, right? And I think that that is the art of politics. And when you do that, you repoliticize domains of political life that were ignored or under politicized right and so i think that first and foremost the domain of political economy needs to be politicized as part of that that also means a richer conversation about class about the politicization of class not in any kind of rigid way 
But I would I, I'm trying to put forward a more expansive conception of class. For example, most people in America or Western kind of raised in this neoliberal era, think about class as one's social position or one's uh, occupation or something like this. Whereas we rarely think about class as sort of impersonal forces that maintain relations of status quo domination, right? That's actually a better way to think about class because it doesn't personalize it. And I think when you personalize it, you then create the politics of resentment. Mm. And I feel that the right is a, a vehicle for intensifying the politics of resentment. And in my in my forthcoming book on Nietzsche, I, I have a whole chapter, I think probably the most bold chapter of the book, where I basically try to argue that the right has kind of incorporated a Nietzschean conception of resentment politics in an ingenious way, whereby they are able to shut down the left at this level of um, individual responsibility. So there's no, there's often no capacity for collective resentments to have any liberatory dimension involved because the right can immediately shut them down as a form of victimhood. And people will look at that and they will, they will relate to it because we live in an entrepreneurial society in which the nexus, the kind of fantasy is the independent and free entrepreneur. But I think in a Marxist sense, you have to show that that is a fantasy. You have to do the work to reveal that the, there is a systemic reliance, a dependent a dependency that's there that is highly deleterious to the project of independence. So I think the, the left needs to be for independence. It needs to be for a new theory of individualism, ultimately. Um, not bourgeois private individualism that perpetuates this status quo. But I think that, but I think that that Nietzsche's conception of resentment has actually been quite harmful to both the right and the left, because mm -hmm. what it has per accelerated is this 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 kind of Schmidian friend enemy distinction, whereby we think of we create a sense of otherness, political otherness, far too quickly, and we we see people in siloed communities far too easily and that then shuts down the possibility of solidarity it shuts down the possibility of breaking the fantasy holes that we have right so i think that people are hungry to break out of these friend enemy distinctions which if you go on social media i mean sometimes if you put out one take you can so quickly so immediately be thrown into an other box an enemy box right just just by a kind of opinion and i think this is very very detrimental i am i am for this is why i was in favor of zizek debating peterson even though zizek says things that are very controversial and he's problematic in some ways sure but how do we get a more expansive conception of what the left is to forge a form of solidarity that brings people in who are supposedly so this is that's actually the paradox of nietzsche's concept of resentment it's a highly moralistic concept even though nietzsche is supposed to be a great anti-moralist when you 
insist on this ultra friend enemy distinction. No, you know, when you judge a community to be of resentment, what you've basically done is you've shut them off. You've ontologically shut them off in some sense from being able to change, right? From being able to have forged solidarity with. I'm opposed to this idea. I'm opposed to this idea. I mean, I, I'm I'm opposed to it while at the same time, I'm sensitive and alert to the question of, say, reaction and fascism. So I'm not necessarily saying that uh, we should dialogue with with hardcore reactionaries. At the same time, I am also saying that if the left doesn't engage with people drawn to conservative ideas, then it's not going to succeed. And I say that as somebody who's from a conservative. I told you I'm from a working class, but I'm from politically from a very conservative background as well. So that's very personal to me, to be able to speak to workers and people from that orientation, I think is, I think is essential. No, and I, I love that. Well, I mean, because that just builds on uh, Matt Flissfetter's work as well. I mean, Matt's work is, has spoken beautifully to that in terms of, you know, how we can actually go out and maintain our social relations through social media by not catapult, like, uh, falling prey to, to capitalists, our capitalist needs or our needs for material conditions in a certain way. Um, and again, I mean, the, the, you're hammering home the point too, but that McManus, that, you know, this new right or postmodern conservatism that's that's popped up as a reactionary sort of movement to, uh, you know, the problems of post-structuralism, the problems of, you know, even what you're describing in terms of the, uh, the legacy of post-audible sort of politics uh, is, is given us a new form of resentment politics. Um, so I guess, well, cause in your book, uh, well, not your book, it actually in your PhD dissertation, you, you talk about the idea of love and how love actually might actually go out and be some sort of remedy to this. And I'm curious to hear you kind of talk a bit more about that. Uh, you know, this ontological idea of love, uh, not in some cheesy sense, uh, obviously. I mean, I, 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 you know, I think you have some deep sort of philosophical roots to your thinking around that. Um, and I'm wondering how you can see that kind of playing into this. Is there a way possibly to go out and start talking about religion in that sort of more healthy? Because if religion at its best, I would think, is moves towards this sort of ontological idea of love, you know, the best of religions, uh, not just Christianity. I mean, I would say Islam, Judaism, uh, Buddhism. I mean, all the great r religious traditions, essentially, you know, they're they're trying to go out and pu push into that direction. And actually something that i'm quite concerned about some coming from religious studies is that on the new right there's this there's this fraction that is highly regressive and they're moving towards you know ideas of neo-integralism a lot of them are returning to this idea of perennialism and traditionalism because they feel that this idea uh, at the core of religion is being lost and um this is what's driving them towards the right essentially right they feel that you know this is what's lacking within the modern and postmodern world uh in a certain way right so it's it's almost like you know postmodern conservatism is a uh you know a, a direct line basically to this form of traditionalism and and religious fundamentalism in a certain way so i'm curious to hear a bit of your your thoughts because I haven't read any of your work on on this idea of love. My feeling, it, well, obviously, I have a feeling that you're obviously drawing from Alain Bedzir quite a bit, but I'd, mm -hmm. I'd love to hear you kind of flesh a bit of that out a bit. Yeah. 
Well, it's funny you say ontological love because in a sense, I'm very much opposed to the Heideggerian notion of a, of a deeper form of, of ontological love. I think actually I try to play Lacan off of Heidegger by showing that from a psychoanalytic standpoint, um, Lacan will show that love involves a conception of the subject rooted in, in lack. So it's not for Lacan, the fullness of one's essential being that forms the bond of love, but it is the it is the negative side. It's the kind of um, the absence. The absence of being forms the. In it's very paradoxical point forms the forms the link of the love bond. So therefore, the love the love bond is 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 a bond found also. I think from a Marxist standpoint, in a new conception of struggle. Right. So I, I and, and this is, I I think, Zizek's influence coming out in me. I think in Zizek's conception, you have a kind of political conception of love in which class struggle itself can become a new site for um, a kind of love vis-a-vis antagonisms. Right. So there's a sense in which if um, social antagonisms are the, the ground of re-envisioning and kind of um, re-coordinating a conception of solidarity. I think that um, there's a way in which socialist politics can form a bond based on the affirmation of these principles, right? There's, so there's a sense in which um, a new theory of comradeship can also emerge from, from that very a commitment to shared to to the shared overcoming of antagonisms right now in a maoist conception mao had the notion that there are elements of the struggle that never dissipate that never go away so therefore his conception of communism is not one of of a pure utopia where you sort of think about a kind of blissful uh, submerging into the kind of motherly peace and care that's not really what socialism is about now i'm not endorsing mao here i'm not really a maoist but what i think is interesting though and you find this in Baju as well is the idea that politics is about the kind of taming of and the kind of revealing of antagonisms and therefore the kind of conscious work on taming them such that, um, and you know, I think Freud and Lacan are important here as well, because in their contributions to politics, especially in Freud's Beyond the Pleasure Principle, what we have here is a vital idea in politics that there is a conception of the subject vis-a-vis what Freud calls the drives. And Lacan will say that each drive, we have multiple drives, we have oral drives, you know, et cetera, different erogenous zones of, of one's body are driven by drive principles. Each one of them, according to Lacan, is structured around a logic of death drive. So for Lacan, he's not a dualist, right? He has a kind of monistic conception of drives. And in that sense, um, again, psychoanalysis emerges as a tool for a kind of conquering of drives, Right. So we have a situation where you don't want a theory of subject, which is overran by drives, almost in the kind of automaton, pure sense. So there is a sense in which politics needs to touch upon 
the way that the social order subjects us to relations of dependence to to um ultimately it's a question of the enlightenment as well because in a sense politics must also tap into this is where reason and rationality would come into play how we locate the antagonisms that hold us down right and i think in that process love as solidarity around shared antagonisms something close to what i would define as political love in that sense and now i think that all of that can be made in concert with religious orientations religious traditions etc i don't see why not mm-hmm. but but at the same time it doesn't need to be um reduced to them right i think that there needs there needs to be a kind of symbiotic relationship there i mean marx and angles were quite hostile to christian socialism as you know but the reason they were hostile to christian socialism needs to his- be historically contextualized the reason is is because following the french revolution there was a, a return to religion amongst the bourgeoisie and the bourgeoisie intelligentsia and therefore socialism took on the hue of a very christian orientation and therefore it in marx and engels's view it ended up uh, having too much of an alignment with bourgeois power and bourgeois institutions that we needed a kind of subtraction from that in some sense but that doesn't mean that marx was um a kind of unthinking or rabid anti-religious thinker. No, I think that he understood Christianity, Christianity's dominance in the Europe European context in which he encountered it. I think we always need to historically situate religion as a force that mutes the class struggle. Because what Marx would basically say is that Christianity produces an answer about antagonism that is ultimately misleading. This is the whole famous opium of the masses. Mm -hmm. All that means is that Christianity provides a solution to social suffering that is not in the service of a thorough liberation. So therefore, Christianity undermines its own objectives. Yeah. So in a sense, you could say Marx is holding Christianity to be more true to its own mission, right? But even Kierkegaard, in a certain way, right? This this idea of of Christianity being watered down to some form of uh, of culture, just to culture, nothing but culture, is usually problematic because it it forms some sort of groupthink. Uh, no, totally on that. I I guess well, because I mean, the, the other person that I really got slammed with in my studies is uh, Levinas. So I got slammed with Habermas and Levinas. So I never really got into the whole Lacan. Uh, side of 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 the street, I guess, in terms of um, I guess this whole sort of uh, the the idea of the other of going out and meeting the face of the other. If we we're going to go out and use Levinas's terms and stuff like that, um, but there's there's also within the, what I call the new right or McManus's calls postmodern conservatism. There's this sort of regression as well to sort of Neoplatonism. Um, and I'm because I'm totally with you, right? This we can't go back to some sort of pre-Heideggerian or even Heideggerian sort of worldview. We need to go post-Heideggerian and definitely something way beyond that. Uh, but it leaves big issues or questions to the idea of ontology, right? What does ontology mean uh, within that sort of 
larger framework or if it does even has any meaning whatsoever anymore or the idea of being uh and you know a lot of people are gravitating towards 4e cog sci right now because a lot of them are you know interpreting it oh this is exactly like neoplatonism it's it's exactly the same thing so it's it supposed to be like this sort of confusion or what habermas what i think habermas means by the idea of some sort of performative contradiction right is like no i mean the, the logic is just not there you're projecting something into the past that was part of our new understanding within the current present and stuff like that um and because this idea of brotherly love or comrade, I mean, I react a bit when I hear the the, the word comrade, you know, like to me that what, what does that mean? <laughs> uh, and that's just, you know, I'm from Quebec, um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a struggling post-Catholic and I have sort of reactionary impulses as well to, to Marxism within my own culture and stuff like that. Um, so I guess it, it, this is because a lot of young people and this is what you talk a lot about with uh, John Bellamy Foster, right? Is that they're attracted to this new irrationalism or what irrationalism is or what these philosophies mean, right? Somebody could go be totally enraptured with this idea of, of Heidegger, right? I mean, if they, their first encounter with this is, you know, all of a sudden this opens up a whole new vista of ideas. Uh, so how, how do we not alienate, I guess, young people that are, that are attracted to this new form of irrationalism like john bellamy foster is you know uh obviously i think conversations like the one we're having now is is probably a good way to go out and have it but you know now that you've had this conversation with john bellamy foster i'm curious to you know kind of where you are with this this problem of the new irrationalism or what you know we've been talking about a bit yes all right so let's let's first try to define what we mean by irrationalism first yeah. so what we mean by that concept is well it, it emerges specifically as a concept in the work of the marxist philosopher georg lukacs and the way that he defines irrationalism is a kind of abandonment on behalf of marxist philosophers in particular but let's say of you know post-german idealist philosophers post-kantian philosophers um, of a particular Hegelian conception of rationality, which would put forward the notion that there is a reconciliation possible between the subject-object dualism, for which Kantianism and Neo-Kantianism will submit that there's not a reconciliation possible. Now, so he's really making a critique of Neo-Kantianism. Okay, so it's we're not going to get lost in the weeds on that, but let's just flag that as what his critique is formed from, which is a very interesting point. But then he says that in the world of intellectual ideas, there have been consequences, kind of like my point about pragmatism. It's not necessarily that all pragmatism needs to be avoided. It's just pointing out the, the way that historically lineages of philosophy have influenced our conception of politics. Mm -hmm. Okay, And what he says about neo-Kantianism is interesting. Where, where What he says is neo-kantianism has led to an embrace of irrationalism by which he means certain tendencies one of them is to privilege myth uh the suprasensible and a, a new conception of the elect a new conception of truth therefore as only realizable by an elite so he actually says that the right 
has abused the consequences of Kant's position, okay? And that is one notion of irrationalism. So for example, in philosophy, he associates this with Schelling, right? Or with Nietzsche, where when Nietzsche will basically put forward his notion of perspectivism, Lukács will argue that one of the um, orientations is driven by what he calls aristocratic epistemology. Aristocratic epistemology puts forward the idea that basically truth in social and political terms should only be reserved for a few elect, right? It's truth is actually an esoteric uh, endeavor, really. And therefore, um, it's not for everyone. So it's a kind of anti-egalitarian conception, right? Whereas Lukács will argue that the Hegelian legacy is fundamentally universal and fundamentally egalitarian, right? Philosophy has that platonic universalism as part of it. The notion that virtue can be taught to all in society. Well, irrationalism would would be opposed to that. Irrationalism mm. would be opposed to universalism. This is what we mean by irrationalism in its various... Now, that takes many different iterations. It takes many different iterations. And you can probably already think of some examples in your head. I mean, Peterson is a perfect example because there is a great book um, called The Jung Cult by Richard Knoll about how Jung, and of course, Peterson is a Jungian, Jung himself creates a conception of truth as myth, but also as esoteric, which is based on the theory of initiation for a kind of ubermensch elite, basically, right? It's a kind of, if you look at the kind of pedagogy of a Jungian school, um, it really is a mystical, it really is a mystical hierarchy that's at work there. Okay, now, I think the thing that Lukács wants to say is that those types of epistemologies, aristoc what he calls aristocratic epistemologies, are harmful to socialism and to Marxism, or to, let's say, egalitarian politics, and therefore even to liberalism in some sense. Mm, okay. okay. So in that way, that's how irrationalists now. Um, the other point is, of course, this, this notion of a critique of the Kantian noumenal or the Kantian thing in itself. And so Lukács will say one of the effects of this proposition that, that Kant put forward is also the idea that some aspects of social reality cannot be known. So if we go back to the point I was making about the knowability of social antagonisms as a source of political love, the irrationalist philosopher would put forward skepticism regarding something like the class struggle. And this is no surprise. I mean, why does Jordan Peterson say there's no such thing as a socialist intellectual, right? Well, because Jordan Peterson would argue that there is an unknowability of the class struggle. Therefore, what he relies on is a kind of apologetic position of capitalism as such, right? Capitalism is basically a reflection of nature in Jordan Peterson's view, right? It's a reflection of human nature. It's, an, it's, it's the most natural system that man has created. So therefore, to question it is an anti-intellectual endeavor, according to Peterson. Well, that's exactly what Lukács would call an irrationalist epistemology. Got it. Oh, lovely. Okay. Does that Great. make sense? Totally. Yeah. No, I yeah. love that. Okay. Yeah. Well, I mean, since we're on, because Habermas talks about this idea of universal pragmatics, and I just 
well, one, I get it. He's essentially trying to go out and talk about a bit about what we're actually going out and talking about. Uh, but my, I guess my question, this is kind of, I and mean, we'll probably end on this. I mean, this was kind of the upshot of my conversation with Matt Flissfetter, right? Is this idea of, of, you know, of, of, of a possibility of a, a renaissance, uh, humanism renaissance, uh, or versus, you know, this debate that, you know, communism versus humanism and this tension on the left. So I'm curious kind of, you know, like kind of where you stand on that, uh, vis-a-vis this sort of universal humanism idea, uh, which, you know, which I love obviously, because obviously you're, you're weaving in a whole tapestry of, of different religious traditions. So you're not, this is what Michael Brooks actually referred to as cosmopolitan socialism, which, uh, actually Matt McManus is going to be releasing a book out this year, which I'm pretty pumped to go and read what he thinks of that. Um, and, so, yeah, I guess kind of, you know, because if we're going to go out and talk about communism, I mean, we're going to go out and hit at one hell of a wall. But if we're talking about some sort of of new humanism that is not obviously allergic to all these political ideologies that are not allergic to all these uh, cultural dimensions that we're talking about, and they're not we're not allergic to all these these religious traditions that we're talking about. Obviously, this is a new form of of Renaissance humanism, is it not? So I'm kind of curious to hear <laughs> yeah. whether you would run with that or you would, yeah. Oh, I mean, I think going back to the point we were making about Marx's critique of religion, of Christianity, yeah. as an opium of the masses, um, well, that conception is meant to suggest, as an opium, what does opium do? But it dulls the senses on the one hand, but it also misdirects our rational faculties regarding what regarding both our suffering as well as our alienation mm. so when you talk about humanism okay, yeah and marxism you're really talking about a theory of alienation you're talking about the 1844 manuscripts paris manuscripts of marx that's really where humanism comes about humanism also comes about of course as a critique of feuerbach right the guy who wrote The Essence of Christianity, the guy who basically theorized socialism as a grand quasi-religious reconciliation of humanity. What was the problem of that for Marx? The problem of that was that it missed the standpoint of the class that struggles and alien is alienated uniquely in relationship to the mode of production within capitalism. That's not to say that the liberation of the proletariat, the working class, is not is anti-humanist. No, I think that it actually still is humanist. It's rather to say that, because his critique of Feuerbach is really a critique about two deferring theories of revolution, because Feuerbach believed in revolution. He differed with Marx about the practical way in which revolution will reconcile humanity. Right. For Feuerbach, it still was kept at a kind of quasi transcendental universalism. So in a sense, Feuerbach was a bad universalist because his universalism was not tethered to forces of production. Right. It, it was it was he was he was speaking in abstractions, whereas Marx was really focusing on the standpoint of struggle tied with and this is why ultimately i think you need a lot of sociology to understand marxism and you need a lot of attention to the way that struggle 
uh, animates our world. I mean, this is this is part of what Marx means by the notion of commodity fetishism, right? There are capitalism conceals its alienating capacity over us. It, it conceals that from us. Part of what politics is about is a process of revealing that to people. When you do that, of course, you you stir up uh, the fire and. But that's actually what politics should be about. I think one way to define liberalism, by the way, is a kind of nominalist effort to redirect, a th kind of like Christianity, liberalism seeks to redirect a different conception of antagonism. So Marxists and liberals, in my view, and I think Matt McManus would disagree with me, have fundamentally different conception of what constitutes social harm, what constitutes social suffering, and how to overcome those impediments. I think that there's a big difference there. Um, it that doesn't mean that Marxists and liberals are enemies always. I'm not, I'm not trying to say I'm not trying to say that they say that, but I think that there are um, concrete differences in vision. Most most importantly is that liberalism, in a technical sense, pretty much is opposed to the idea of revolutionizing capitalism. Right. So clearly we're going to have some some disagreements at that point. But I mean, what I would say is that, yeah, humanism is a part of Marxism to the extent that Marx is anti-humanist in my reading. It would only be insofar as Marx is opposed to non-materialist conceptions of universalism. OK. He wants to hold those traditions more true to their own commitments to liberation, including Christianity and religion. So it's not necessarily anti-religion. I would say it's it's a uh, producing a, an uh, an outcome, an end that is more true, perhaps, to the purported end of these traditions, if that makes sense. Yeah. No, lovely. I mean, uh, well, one, I mean, I, I was, I'd love to, to, to have you for another hour, even two hours, uh, because I mean, my, my eventually during my religious studies, uh, towards the end of my religious studies, I fell upon Jacques Maritain's work and his ideas of integral humanism. And uh, very much, I guess, kind of like the uh, the talk that you did with Chris in terms of uh, the Marxist current talk that you had there, uh, the Kowalowski sort of, I mean, the Kowalowski Jacques Maritain sort of tension is is a, is a space that you know I, I kind of find myself torn between, <laughs> torn between uh, in a certain way, and uh, and 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 even I I don't think that Jacques Maritain's ideas of integral humanism would go out and apply today, but I'm wondering if that's a term that we could start actually used to go out and bounce around today in terms of a new form of humanism that might be emerging or something some sort of social hope that might be coming down the pipeline but yeah uh, no i mean i think i think that that's um a rich uh tradition and lineage to invoke in this in this wider debate yeah i, I don't i don't know enough about that orientation you, you would have to educate me in another podcast and uh, give me some reading recommendations to educate myself in that but i mean i think the point is that we're having the discussion and that we are, at least for, on the Marxist end, realizing that there is a huge lineage of Marxist thinkers that that do put forward a positive conception of humanism. Totally. Yeah. Um, and that we, we should we should really honor their legacy, their history and uh, resurrect that debate, because it's only been really since about the post-World War II period that we've had this notion of a anti-humanist Marxism, right? And I and I think that that, uh, 
you know, I mean, the the jury's not yet out, but I mean, I think in general, it's been a bit harmful, the anti-humanist Marxist turn. Um, mm-hmm. I think I'm not really in line with it. I mean, I, it's nuanced. I don't want to essentialize it. You know, Althusser, I have my criticisms of Althusser, um, which we can talk about in another uh, in meeting, but I'm very much in line with with um, new debates on humanism. Let's put it that way. Lovely. No, super. No, and I mean, this is the upshot that I find so great about, uh, you know, uh, both Matt's uh, in your work is that I just see the, a, a tremendous amount of hope. Uh, and the fact that you guys are young faculty now, right, you guys are starting to go and move out and you guys are really starting to go out and establish yourself. Uh, I think this is an exciting moment. I mean, it's it's scary all at the same time, but there's a lot of exciting stuff out there. And uh, this is the type of stuff that I latch on to and uh, that I cherish and uh, I think is really the, the future of the left anyways, when I think about it. So it's been a great chat. I, let's do it again. I'd yeah. love to perhaps chat with you about my book on on Friedrich Nietzsche. I don't know if you're a big Nietzsche reader, but uh, I'd love to chat with you about that when it yeah. comes out. Definitely. Well, absolutely. Thank you so much for your time. <laughs>